Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer McClure, an assistant professor of English at Kent State University, about her book, The Feeling of Letting Die, Necroeconomics and Victorian Fiction, out from the Ohio State University Press this November. The Feeling of Letting Die is a fascinating book that examines how Victorian authors engaged with and felt about the problem of letting die under free market industrial capitalism. The book considers the fiction of authors, including Elizabeth Gaskell, George Eliot, and Charles Dickens, teasing out new ways of reading uh, Victorian sympathy and pleasure, among other feelings, and urging us to reconsider the way capitalism makes us feel versus the way it needs us to feel. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. McClure, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, so I always start with the first, uh, the same first question. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the question or questions of the book? Sure. Um, so I, I'm an assistant professor at Kent State. Um, I did my graduate work at University of Wisconsin-Madison. So that's where I kind of got my start. Um, this book, I would say that the instigating question, the kind of knot that I was trying to untie was the problem of non-intervention. So in looking at Victorian fiction and thinking about economics, um, you notice that a lot of Victorian economic thinkers as well as um, literary thinkers are are considering this problem of non-intervention that is, is being discussed a lot at this time period. So the idea of laissez-faire capitalism, the idea that you need to that in order to make an economy run as effectively as possible you need to do as little as possible to it and let the market kind of do its own thing which sounds really easy right like just don't do anything that sounds very simple but what i think victorian literature reveals and even the economic thinkers themselves reveal is that it's actually a lot more complicated than that and i think in this time period in more and less direct ways, we see a lot of authors struggling with the problem of what do you do when a certain economic ideology asks you to not intervene, um, to let something happen? Um, and what do you do when that gets ethically complicated? Um, and then I get into a lot more, you know, later in the book, a lot more kind of um, tricky situations where actually, um, people are taking pleasure in that process and, and, and things like that. But uh, that's sort of the starting point of the book. What happens when you are asked not to intervene? And especially I'm focusing on 
what happens when you are asked not to intervene in a situation where somebody is going to die, right? Where um, the result of that is going to be death. And how do you, what feelings let you do that? What feelings get in the way of doing that? Um, and how are those feelings produced and how can they potentially be changed? That's sort of the, the orienting question of the book. Great. Thank you. Um, so can you define necroeconomics um, for our listeners, since this is such a key term to the book, um, and tell us a little bit about sort of the state of capitalism in this time period that you're examining? Sure. So necroeconomics, um, this is this term, it's not my original term. It's come, I'm borrowing it from um, Hill and Montag, who wrote a book called The Other Adam Smith. That's where I'm getting the term from. And they're actually building on Akil Mbembe's term necropolitics. Um, basically, what it means is any time that death gets instrumentalized or made operative in a system of capitalism. So not just where it's being produced as an accidental byproduct, a sort of unfortunate result, but where it's actually being instrumentalized in some way or required in some way. So and in this situation, so there's a lot of things that could be called necroeconomic, probably the most important of those is slavery. Obviously, slavery is a necroeconomic system um, and probably the most necroeconomic system we've ever seen. Um, at the time period that I'm looking at, and in the, in the context that I'm looking, Victorian Britain, um, and I'm looking primarily in the domestic context, this question would apply very differently in the imperial context. Um, necroeconomics takes, the, takes an interesting form um, particularly because of the economic ideas that are circulating at that time period, some of which have become almost um, so ingrained in our culture as well now that we don't even think of them as as innovations, <laughs> um, like not the idea of, of laissez-faire capitalism, right? The idea that you need to, that a market can sort of regulate itself. We don't, that's almost like received wisdom now to the extent that we, we barely think about it as an idea. Um, but that idea is really coming out of, I mean, this is oversimplifying a little bit, but it's really coming out of Adam Smith. Um, and, you know, he writes the wealth of nations in 1776. So we're getting, we're, we're in the time period, or I've started the book in the 1820s, we're in the time period where those ideas are kind of taking on a life of their own, but just starting to do so. Um, and so you're getting people arguing for a free market in more explicit ways than we see today, even though we certainly still have people making those arguments today. Um, that's not to say that the Victorian market was a completely free market, um, just, you know, as as today, there are a lot of ways in which the market was not actually operating freely. Um, but what I'm interested in is the ways that people are, are arguing for a free market and the way that that reveals certain problems that novelists then take up and thematize in really interesting ways. Speaking of um, sort of getting into one of your novelists, I was really fascinated by the way that you triangulate Malthus, Adam Smith, and Harry. Is it Martineau? Am I saying mm -hmm. that? Yeah, Harriet Martineau, um, early in the book. So I'm wondering if you can tell us sort of what's important to understand about this trio, particularly in the context then of Martineau's fictional work. Yes. So those two thinkers, those are those are the two kind of 
economic thinkers that I'm most engaged with. Malthus, um, whether we even would call him straightforwardly an economic thinker is up for debate. But um, I think that in examining this period, there's sort of a, the crux of the problem that I'm examining, I think comes in the um, friction between Adam Smith's ideas and Malthus's ideas. So, and I'm really focusing on a couple, you know, a couple of key things that get taken up from those thinkers rather than diving into all of the nuance of their thought. Um, as many, there are lots of other scholars who have done that if you want to read more about Smith and Malthus. But um, the ideas that I'm particularly interested in are the way that the idea of non-intervention comes up against the idea of population as Malthus describes it. So for Smith, the the idea that I'm pulling out is this idea that in order to make, to produce the greatest amount of prosperity, what we need to do is leave the market alone, withdraw intervention. Um, the idea from Malthus that's that I'm drawing out at that same time period is his population problem. The idea that um, that population grows at a rate that is not commensurate with the growth of food production. And therefore that at some point the population is going to outpace food production. Um, and therefore we need to, you know, encourage people to delay their marriages for Malthus. That's mainly what it, what it is because he's not really considering the possibility of contraception, but um Smith and Malthus don't really completely agree, right? They're not necessarily united. On some things they are, but on a lot of things they're not. And the main thing that I think they're not united on is population. So we end up with this problem of, on the one hand, we need non-intervention. On the other hand, we can't let population get out of control. Um, what does that end up with? Uh, this idea that we need to step back and potentially allow those surplus populations, those extra people um, to starve to death, essentially, right? That's, and I think that's the kind of problem haunting a lot of this Victorian fiction. Um, in some cases, it's a little bit more subtle. In Martineau's case, it's not subtle. <laughs> Martineau is not subtle. Um, she is, she, she is a fiction writer, but she's also a popularizer um, of economic thought. So popularizer, not a popularizer. Um, so she is basically taking the ideas of Smith, Ricardo, Malthus, um, and she writes these didactic novellas called Tales of Political Economy, um, where she creates a story that is meant to illustrate a certain economic principle. And her goal here is to basically evangelize um for these these economic thinkers to take these these concepts that she's getting from political economy um from classical economics and bring them to the masses make them um understandable and available to a reading a, a very quickly growing reading public at this time period so she's you know writing these these really odd stories where you know, we we watch the progress of a strike and then we learn about why you're not supposed to strike and why it's, you know, count, why it's um, self-defeating. And then at the end, we get a little list of economic principles 
with citations often from the the economic thinkers that she's drawing them from and we learn our you know what we're supposed to get out of that so she is bringing in Smith's ideas, bringing in Malthus ideas, bringing in Ricardo's ideas all together um, and kind of just um, trying to trying to convince people of the truth of those ideas and showing them how they have to modify their behaviors in order to work around those kind of immutable truths as she sees them. As I was reading this part of the book, I was imagining what like her Twitter feed would look like if she was around today. I'm feeling kind of grateful that that, that Twitter feed doesn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, she's a she's not a. It's interesting to start with these these tales because they're not great fiction in the same way that something like Middle March is, which I also discuss in this book. Um, but I think it is really interesting when she starts to put them into fiction, you start to see like she's sort of exploring the implications of these ideas without almost without meaning to do so. Like in the example of um, Dr. Burke, who she um, is in uh, Cousin Marshall, one of the tales, she describes this doctor who's a parish doctor paid to provide care for the indigent and he has like a crisis of conscience about whether or not he should be providing care to the poor because he thinks that he's doing wrong because he's supposed to be not intervening, right? So he's kind of taking um, taking literally this injunction not to intervene. Um, and he is really, you know, both a, a Smithian and a Malthusian figure at the same time. He's, he's um, concerned about the problem of a growing population, and he thinks that people need to limit their reproduction. Um, but he also is seeing the solution to that as a solution of non-intervention, withdrawing care, um, sort of strategic non-intervention, um, withdrawing his care, and then also his sister withdrawing charitable giving. Um, we see that sort of the male public and the female private versions of of withdrawing care from the poor as as an ethical decision <laughs> like he wants to provide care his his natural feelings um with scare quotes in incline him to provide care but he thinks that he shouldn't because of um because of the um injunction not to in the service of, of maintaining a free market and limiting the growth of population. So it ends up being this very weird moment where he he's kind of realizing he can't trust his gut that like Martineau takes for granted that people do care about each other, but that they need to be taught not to act upon that care. <laughs> they actually need to um, stop doing that. Stop, stop acting upon their care. They should still feel the care because that makes them good. You know, that's sort of a good natural feeling to have, but they shouldn't act upon it. They should resist the desire to act upon it. Um, other, other authors in the book are going to treat that a little bit differently and see, and see different ways of, of um, understanding that relationship between the sort of middle-class person of, of some means who has the power to intervene um, watching somebody from the, from um, a lower class position want be in want um and suffer from that 
Well, that is an excellent segue into my next question. So moving into chapter two, you argue for, quote, the radical potential of Elizabeth Gaskell's depiction of sympathy, end quote. So if you could tell us a bit about that depiction and what is this radical potential that you're that you're reading in it? Yeah. So for that, that chapter, the, the biggest thing that I'm contributing, I guess you could say, um, to talking about feeling in Gaskell is that I think we often read sympathy through Smith's lens. This is just kind of an interesting feature of Smith's thought that he, you know, is this kind of figure of classical economics, but then he also wrote theory of moral sentiments, which is this very famous and very influential account of how sympathy works. Um, and in this chapter, I'm kind of saying, I don't really think that Gaskell's sympathy is working the same way that Smith describes sympathy. So for, for Smith, sympathy is largely a cognitive act, an act of imaginative projection, right? That what you do when you sympathize with somebody is you sort of imagine yourself in their place and then you respond to them based on what you would feel in their place. So you're not actually feeling for them necessarily. You're sort of feeling for an imagined version of yourself and nothing is really passing between you. Um, and I think <laughs> this is sort of just my hobby horse. I'm, I'm, I am not compelled by this account of sympathy. Um, and I don't think it's not to say that it, that sympathy doesn't in some cases happen in that way, but I, it's a form of sympathy that I'm not that interested in <laughs> that I think doesn't end up doing that much. And what I think we see in Gaskell's writing is we see people sympathizing in a very visceral, impulsive, embodied way. Um, and in a way that seems to involve real exchange, real communication between bodies, um, between individual bodies. There's a, a kind of permeability there, a, a, um, a vulnerability to being impressed upon by another um, and to, to reacting to their suffering and to being compelled into action and care by that sympathy. So, and it, you know, I, I characterize it as kind of a more Spinozan model, um, kind of more similar to how Spinoza talks about sympathy. So I think that, so how I understand Gaskell's um, version of sympathy is that basically she thinks that people do naturally feel sympathy, that there is this kind of natural, and I use that word under advisement, um, but a kind of natural embodied impulse to sympathize with and feel for and act in in the care for um, another individual in response especially to their embodied suffering to their to their vulnerability of their suffering um and what gaskell shows is how there's all these barriers these um different impediments put in put in the way of that kind of sympathy by the industrial mill um, town that that both of both Mary Barton and North and South are set in. So, you know, there's ways of keeping 
people physically apart, preventing actual contact between the mill owners and the workers, preventing any kind of real connection between them, but then also all sorts of ways of structuring interpersonal interactions to limit or disincentivize sympathy between people. Um, so I think for Gaskell, she suggests that sympathy is there. It's this kind of natural force that that flows between people. And capitalism has had to stop it up in certain areas, kind of squash it in certain areas to prevent it from flowing too readily and getting in the way of people being willing to exploit each other, basically. Um, so I think she presents it in a way that suggests that it has very radical potential. And if you just let that sympathy flow, if you took away those material barriers to it, you would end up with um, a community full of people who are not willing to exploit each other, which would lead to very different material conditions. <laughs> And you're also arguing in this chapter that Gaskell sort of presents like a different vision of capitalism, like what capitalism could be, um, a kind of capitalism you write that would produce health, like rather than producing and leveraging illness and vulnerability. Um, can you tell us how Gaskell sort of imagines this capitalism being produced? Yeah, this is where this is where it gets weirder. <laughs> um, this is where this is where she loses me a little bit. Um, I think, yeah. So she. She sort of, I in the chapter, I, I go through all the ways in which I think she's showing sympathy being squashed over here, kind of amplified over here. Um, and in most places, it's sympathy being squashed between, you know, especially cross-class sympathy, sympathy between um, the masters and men, as she would call them. But the one place where it gets amplified is particularly in women, um, and especially in, um, I, I'm looking at the ways in which unmarried women become an interesting source of sympathy because they're sort of produced as sympathizers, as like sympathy supplements who can, um, provide the sympathy that's being squashed in other places. Um, and the unmarried woman is sort of like a, 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 free radical in a sense. She's, you know, she's this kind of um, unclaimed resource of sympathy going around in the novel, um, you know, having this, this potential and this value, but also this threat of, of a kind of untethered sympathy fountain, I guess. Um, so the weird solution that, that Gaskell ends with is, you know, I think if we, if she really pushed her, her, her idea of sympathy to its logical conclusion, I think we would actually get something like what we get in Morris. I, I think she would actually end up with, with something similar to Morris's um, sort of anarcho-communist utopia in News from Nowhere, but it's Elizabeth Gaskell, so that's not where she goes. She does not end with that. Um, instead, we get this kind of weird workaround where She's kind of using the the byproducts or the supplemental um, elements of capitalism and repositioning them at the center. So she's kind of we we end with a you know a bourgeois woman sort of being handed the means of production, right? <laughs> and like the the alternative version of capitalism that she's imagining, where um, 
you know, instead of producing unhealthy bodies, that's another big part of the chapter. I talk about the way that, um, you know, the ill health of the workers is being produced and utilized as an instrument of, of control. Um, she's, she's imagining, well, what, what if we switched up capitalism and instead of producing unhealthy bodies, we produced healthy bodies, but the way that she imagines doing that is sort of by just, just having a, you know, Margaret Hale at the end of North and South being in control of, of the mill, right. Kind of inherit, essentially inheriting the land that the mill is on. And then, you know, through marriage, um, becoming the sort of guardian, the sympathetic guardian of this little unit of industrial capitalism. Um, so it's, it's a very weird and, um, dare I say untenable system. (laughs) It's, it's not, um, you know, an actual system that I think could work, but it, what I think it reveals is the, the, the knots that you get yourself into when you're trying to, um, unravel this, this problem. And she, what I think she does this, a very incisive critique of the way that, that capitalism has to police and control feeling to make itself stable, right. To stabilize itself that, that, um, you know, pro-social feelings end up being a threat to capitalism, which is sort of like an interesting inverse to, Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand, which suggests that potentially antisocial feelings like self-interest could be actually converted into pro-social, um, you know, productive impulses through the invisible hand, that people will act in their own self-interest and it will actually be for the benefit of the community. She's envisioning something different here where she's suggesting that, you know, the, the inverse of that is also true that, that pro-social feelings end up being a threat to capitalism, um, that people's care and compassion for one another threaten the whole system. But instead of suggesting that we need a new system, she ends up just saying, well, let's just put this like benevolent, woman at the head of it and then we will everything will be solved so it's a it's a real um band-aid solution but i think what she does do is reveal a systemic problem yeah definitely (laughs) um so moving into chapter three you talk about slow violence um in dickens bleak house so if you could share your kind of like take on slow violence um, and how does this kind of slow violence play into necroeconomics? Yes, in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm slow violence. I'm drawing there on Rob Nixon's book called Slow Violence. Um, and he is using that in the context of environmental violence. Um, so like, for example, toxic waste being, transported to certain communities and slowly um, affecting the health of those communities. So the kinds of non-spectacular violence um, and that that are hard to represent. And I, I absolutely buy his argument in that book that one of the central challenges facing us right now in the world is how to represent forms of slow violence and how to kind of how to understand them and how to help other people understand them and see them as violence, um, particularly 
it's this is particularly pressing like in a climate crisis. I think that there are a lot of forms of slow violence that are oper- operative in necroeconomics, like literal slow violence. So, you know, for example, in Gaskell's novels, we see this. We see people, workers being very slowly poisoned by their working conditions. That's a form of literal slow violence. What I consider in the Dickens chapter is what kinds of affective or emotional interactions take place over time to make possible that kind of violence. Um, And I think those also operate according to a a model of slow violence or a model that, that Rob Nixon's formula of slow violence helps us to see or helps us to make visible. Um, So in particular, I'm interested in the ways that I trace several like these interact repeated iterated interactions in which people come into contact with one another and actually kind of produce boundaries between themselves um, or between each other that make exploitation easier that make exploitation possible. So that's I'm that's what I'm calling slow affective violence in the book. Um, these kinds of interactions again and again, where somebody witnesses another person suffering, but instead of feeling sympathy, they actually feel something else um, and something that enables them to kind of build up a barrier between themselves and that suffering and to even take pleasure in the building up of the barrier um, that, you know, not only makes them able to stomach somebody else's suffering, but actually makes them able to enjoy it or to feel good about it. Yeah. Okay. So this, yeah, brings us perfectly into this next question. So you talk about this idea of boundary pleasure and how it's at work in Dixon, Dixon's, uh, (laughs) his writing. (laughs) Um, so could you kind of walk us through a little bit of that with one of your examples? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole Dickens chapter is sort of starting to question the assumption that we are necessarily going to feel bad feelings only when we see other people suffering, which I think, you know, we would like to believe is possible, but isn't necessarily. (laughs) There are lots of cases in which people see somebody else suffering and they actually feel good feelings. Um, So, and I think Dickens is very, Dickens makes that visible in a way that Martineau and Gaskell don't really consider it in the same way. So I look at this in maybe a a potentially unexpected example of the, um, the philanthropist, and I'm putting that in big quotation marks, um, Mrs. Particle, who basically just goes from house to house in the book. Um, she goes to the cottages of, um, some of the working class people in the, in the novel and, and sort of just yells at them, (laughs) um, She's a philanthropist. She calls herself a philanthropist. Other people refer to her as a philanthropist, but she's she's not doing any actual charity. She's not providing them anything. Um, she's just sort of going and witnessing their suffering. Um, and she, she's constantly described. She's described in, t- in two interesting ways. One is that she's kind of described as 
stone or iron or hard, right? She's described as being impermeable. And she's also described as being very healthy and strong. So many of these scenes, what we're really just getting is her kind of taking pleasure and delight and fulfillment in the experience of being different from the cottagers that she's interacting with. And specifically different in the sense that she is feeling healthy and they are feeling unhealthy, right? She is feeling wholesome and strong and they are describing themselves as unwholesome. There's this kind of inverse relationship between the two of them. And she seems to be, you know, not only taking note of that relationship, but actually taking pleasure in that relationship, seeming to like grow off of it. Like it's, it's, she's gaining power, (laughs) gaining pleasure and, and kind of getting stronger and stronger from this experience of, um, of the barrier between her. So that's what I'm calling boundary pleasure is that, that feeling that she is, um, she's just one example of it, but feeling pleasure in the production of, and the experience of a boundary between the self and a disadvantaged other. Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, Thanks. It's sort of the opposite of of what Gaskell envisions, right? Yeah. For Gaskell, she just kind of takes for granted that people are going to feel sympathy. Once you take away external constraints, people are going to feel sympathy for each other. People are going to to care and to care for each other in the absence of artificial constraints on that sympathy. I think Dickens is a little bit less optimistic about human nature. <laughs> and um, and that's not to say that there aren't artificial constraints in place, you know, in this in this text. And we, but for you know, for Mrs. Particle, um, you know, she is she is interacting directly with these people. There's no um constraints there's no physical or material barriers between her and the and the cottagers that she's interacting with but she's producing a kind of affective boundary um and instead of feeling sympathy for them feeling this kind of boundary pleasure where she's defining herself in opposition to them and taking pleasure in their suffering as she delights in her own good health <laughs> um okay so i want to move us into chapter 4 um in which you discuss George Eliot and William Morris, whose views and writings seem very different, but interestingly, as you reveal, share an understanding of the stickiness of capital. Can you walk us through this, the stickiness and how these two different authors sort of propose that people get unstuck? Yeah, they're very different writers stylistically, (laughs) Um, but but I think there are a couple, I think there are a lot of similarities, actually, um, really interesting similarities in in the way that they're thinking about money. And so I'm drawing here on Sarah Ahmed's The Cultural Politics of Emotion, um, which is just one of, I've drawn it all the time. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I think it's an incredibly enabling text, but she, Ahmed discusses, she describes certain objects as being sticky. She's talking about how do feelings circulate, right? How do they circulate between people? And for her, she's saying they're not, it's not just like somebody feels next to you and therefore you feel the same thing, right? It's not this kind of like direct transfer between bodies. They circulate through and around objects. 
So objects get kind of saturated with feelings. And that could be a physical object, but it could also be a kind of representation. Um, you know, certain ideas get saturated with fear or with disgust or with hate or with love. Um, and then they circulate and kind of, um, and there are certain certain objects that are more effectively charged that are stickier than others, um, that we have more kind of emotional investment in. And the more emotional investment, the stickier things are and the harder it is to get them unstuck. Um, harder it is to pull certain meanings off of them and um, stick new meanings to them. Although it is possible, you know, an example might be like the word queer, which has changed what feelings are stuck to it over the years um, through repeated, you know, different interactions, interactions over and over again, uses over and over again with a difference. Um, but in this case, the object that is sticky is money capital. Um, and I make the argument that for, for Elliot, she's really thinking of, of money almost, it's almost like a blob of slime or something, um, in Middlemarch and in Felix Holt, but especially in Middlemarch, um, where every time somebody interacts with, with capital, it seems to, to get stuck to them, right? Like even more than a glob of slime, I would say it's like a, it's like a glob of slime that's filled with glitter. <laughs> so it's it's something that you once you interact with it, once you touch it, it's stuck to you and you just cannot get it off. That glitter is going to be, you know, on you forever. Um, and so we see, you know, for example, in the Lydgate Bolstrode interaction, we see these, you know, a, a one character kind of become a social pariah become tainted with, um, with scandal. And we see the way that that scandal kind of moves through a community and sticks to other people based on their interactions with money. And it, it's very, even there's a scene that has always fascinated me with Mary Garth talking to Featherstone where, um, I'm not sure how much, I don't want to spoil Middlemarch for anybody, but um, so I won't give too much context here, but there's a scene where, where he's trying to get her to, um, to change a will and is offering to bribe her essentially. And she keeps saying over and over again, I will not touch your money. I will not touch the money. Um, it's like, almost like a mantra. She's just saying it over and over again. I will not touch the money. I won't touch it. I will not touch it. Right. And there's this refusal to get the money stuck to her. I think there's some kind of almost magical quality to the money that it's getting, it's getting stuck on everybody. And it's, it's, it threatens to spread a sort of social contagion throughout the community. And so they, and I think that actually Morris see something similar, but they have very, very different solutions to this. I think for, for Elliot, the solution is if you can make money unsticky by, by like emotionally divesting from it, what you need is to remove the emotional investment in money. If you don't care about it emotionally at all, then the problem is solved. So you can still engage in capitalism. You just can't care about capital. <laughs> and it's a weird solution. It does it has some major problems? Um one of those problems is how do you not care like how does that 
transformation happen that you stop caring about money. And I think, I don't think Elliot really even tackles that problem very much because most of the characters who don't care about money in this way are, are just born that way. Like Dorothea, Caleb Garth, um, they just naturally, they, they're just like that. <laughs> they just seem to naturally not care about money very much. Um, and in Caleb's case to actively sort of dislike money, um, and then Felix Holt, who maybe has a little bit more of a transformation experience, it really happens off stage. Like it does, it's not narrated in the novel. He just comes back to the novel, not caring about money. So, um, you know, not being motivated by profit. So that that's a challenge to this solution. The other challenge is it kind of reinforces social hierarchy, like class hierarchy. It kind of, it puts... Um, anyone at the bottom of the class hierarchy in a really tough position because the only way you know to avoid the the potential dangers of engaging in monetary exchange is to not desire profit at all which seems to preclude any kind of social mobility and i think even in felix holt i would argue elliot suggests that you know, being eligible for the political franchise requires that you don't care about profit or social mobility, which is a real issue. But uh, for Morris, it's a much simpler solution. Just just get rid of capitalism. Um, Morris is at the end of the book because he's the only one who comes up with that solution of let's just get rid of capitalism entirely. Um, and News from Nowhere is a sort of utopian novel um, sort of time travel novel where somebody travels into the future of Britain and they end up in a a sort of anarcho-communist society. Um, and literally there's no currency. Like there just isn't money at all in this in this world that that Morris imagines. It's not even it's barely even like a barter economy. There's just no currency whatsoever. People just give each other the stuff that they need. So um, people are producing for the pleasure of producing goods, produce the things they need and just share them freely. So you don't have to worry about the stickiness of capital when there is no capital for Morris. I, he um, also doesn't really solve the problem of how do we get there though? <laughs> that's a tough problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he mentions it a couple of times, but, um, uh, he, yeah, it's, it's about the after much more than the during in news from nowhere. Um, so you mentioned uh, in your previous answer, sort of capital is like a social contagion or threatening a social contagion. And you use this sort of like model of communicable disease sort of throughout the book. Um, and I just thought it was really effective and really interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about like how you're using communicable illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a problem, I think. <laughs> um, it's a, I think the contagion is a problem when for a lot of these authors, the thing that we need in order to create a more equitable world, I guess you could say, put it in very grandiose terms, um, is for people to be more permeable. Like the, the kind of bad guy in a lot of these accounts is boundaries, boundedness, um, putting walls up between people. You know, that's what the the mill owners do in Gaskell's novels. That's what 
Mrs. Particle does and Mr. Skimpole and, you know, a lot of the kind of um, quote unquote villains in Bleak House are putting up boundaries between people. So in generally the, the opposite of that is presented positively. You know, what we need is permeability. What we need are, is, is less boundaries between people, more genuine trans individual communication and flow and reciprocity. But I think that inevitably gets complicated. And I mean, in our world as well, I wrote a lot of this book before COVID, um, but it, it certainly was on my mind in the, in the latter stages of writing this book. Um, in the same way that I think it was on the mind of a lot of Victorian authors, contagion was was present, illness was present, um, and we have a lot of characters who practice a kind of compassionate care and then get sick. <laughs> Esther is probably, Esther Summerson in Bleak House is the primary example of this, and this was a problem that I was struggling with. Like, I don't, I knew that I did not want to interpret it in the sense of a punishment, right? Oh, you get punished for, for caring or you get punished for being permeable. And I think in some ways, I talk about that at the end of the Dickens chapter, that there is a kind of problem with the model that Dickens presents um, of compassionate care, which is Esther. We end up with this kind of eternally in like infinitely giving selfless woman um, as the, the sort of center node of the network of care, um, that emanates around her. And while, you know, her, the care that she provides is, is great. And the, you know, the, her permeability is enabling to the production of a healthy community. It seems to be premised upon her physical vulnerability, um, and her kind of vulnerable body. So I think the only way, the only, there's there's two authors who sort of get out of that. I think for Gaskell, she really highlights how communicable illness is caused by the inequalities and the poverty produced by capitalism. So, you know, we see we see the spread of communicable illness, but it's specifically illness that is produced in slums that is produced by characters not having enough food, not having the basic necessities of life, often people who are suffering as a result of unemployment due to the kind of unpredictability of employment in um, in the mills that she's depicting. And actually that same thing could be argued in Bleak House. Um, Joe's illness is a product of Tom All Alone's. It's a product of the slum. Um, in that case, the the person to blame is not a person it's chancery um it's this court system but in both cases there is some kind of larger system um that you could put that you could lay the the disease at the foot of um but i think we don't the only in both cases it's not until we get to william morris and news from nowhere that we get a situation where kind of complete vulnerability and permeability is safe um, and that, you know, that kind of vulnerability only becomes safe in the context of a world that is not rife with, with diseases. So I think they're all kind of negotiating this problem of what spreads between people. And I mean, maybe, I guess in some ways it's like the, a fundamental problem of being human, which is that 
we need to be open and permeable in order to be alive and also <laughs> to be part of a community. But being so also makes us vulnerable to dangerous stuff. Yeah. Um, so I do want to talk just briefly about your afterword, um, which is titled Our Necroeconomic Present. And in it, you ask, quote, under what conditions can care produce systemic change, end quote. And I think that's like a wonderful question that, you know, you have us sort of thinking about throughout the whole book, right? Um, so how how do you see feeling as a, as a sort of tool for change and sort of as a, maybe as a separate question? Um, but, you know, I always like to know, like, what, what do you want people to do with your book, right? And this feels like a great question and potentially an answer, right, that can sort of point us there. So if we can kind of keep that in mind, that would be great. Yeah, um, I do. I do see feeling as a tool for social change, but I would say not in an individual way and not in not detached from material conditions. Like, I don't think that I kind of want to resist the model of I wish this, but I wish the answer were people can read a novel and then that will make them feel sympathy for people who are unlike them and that will save the world. <laughs> I wish that were the the answer especially as someone who you know teaches in and advocates for the humanities that would be awesome if that were the answer. But unfortunately I don't think that's how it works. Um I think that feelings are produced in and through material conditions. I think I don't think that we just inherently have certain feelings. Um, I think they're produced something like, I mean, a good example of this would be racism, right? Like, I don't think that people are just naturally born racist. Um, I think that it is, but I think people do genuinely feel certain, you know, fear, antipathy, things like that that are racist and those feelings feel visceral, visceral to them, which probably makes it feel natural, but it's not natural. It's not inherent. It's something that's been produced through these kind of micro interactions over time, right? All of these iterated interactions, these, your exposure to certain media, your interactions in day-to-day -day life, um, you know, what you read, what you see on TV, how you how you talk in your family, um, you know, what you see in your community, in your school, all of these things over and over and again, produce, produce gut feelings, I guess I would say. Like, I think a lot of times our gut feelings are actually not the natural instinctive things we believe them to be. Even something as simple as, as disgust at a certain food, right? It, that feels so inherent. It feels like it comes from our bodies, but it's different from one culture to another. Right? Like with the things that we're disgusted by really just depend on what we grew up eating, but it feels inherent. So that's the kind of one of the big takeaways for me is to think about how our gut feelings are not just naturally there. They're produced by something. And so, and then those feelings, but so the other thing I believe, that's one thing I believe, that gut feelings are produced. The other thing I believe is that systems of oppression do depend on our feelings to work. I mean, racism is, again, an example. If if nobody felt any racist feelings, now, 
you know, racism happens systemically through policies and through, you know, kind of, you know, things like redlining and, you know, like kind of complex systems of discrimination that are not individuated. But if nobody felt a single racist feeling, then that system wouldn't have much power, right? It wouldn't do very much without the feelings that that fuel it. So it's kind of a like systems produce feelings, but then feelings also help produce systems um, or at least maintain them. So it's like a dialectic. I think they're both producing each other. So what that means to me is that the only way to really expect that that feelings on a wide scale and a systemic level could be changed is by making material changes that change the way we interact with people or change the kinds of representations we see on a day-to-day basis or change the kind of tenor of interactions. And then those small interventions over a long period of time or on a wide scale have the potential um, to interrupt other systems to kind of change the way that that people are feeling, um, which then I think can help change those systems again. So it's like a it's a cycle, right? Both of those things are are producing each other. So that's I, that's the sense. If that makes any sense, that's that's how I understand feelings as a a tool for social change. It's not just like you feel differently and magically change happens. Um, in the way it sometimes works in the movies. Like you have one transformative experience and now you, you know, feel differently and, you know, believe in the power of the Christmas spirit or whatever. And now everything is different. Um, it's, it's much slower than that. Um, and it, it can only happen in concert with material change. Um, yeah. One of the things that I think like reading your book was really useful to me in sort of helping like clarify, especially thinking about um, like Smith's definition of sympathy with Gaskell's, right? Is like thinking about in our present moment when we bring up stuff like racism, right? And, you know, oftentimes the response will be like, well, do you just want people to feel bad, right? As if like the feeling bad is going to do something. And I think most people know that's not the case. And it's a kind of glorification, I think, of white people's feelings, which is like sort of a side of my main point, but I think is real. Um, but, it, you know, it ends up being a sort of a distraction and an excuse um, that I think like thinking about Gaskell's idea of sympathy was exciting to me because, yeah, if you think about it as a sort of like a, a bodily response, an embodied response that that produces action, right? And it is like you know, maybe it's sort of an individual experience, but really it's not, right? Because it's produced by the interaction and it's like completed or done through the interaction, right? Um, anyways, I, I don't know where I'm going with it, but I just I just found it really interesting to think through that because I've had a problem with that sort of you just want us to feel a bad reaction. But it's like, yes, you know, you can you can see how these competing ideas about feelings and what they do and why we should have them. Um, you know, to trace the sort of longer history of it. It was just fascinating to me and helped me sort of make sense of, of that response that I've had. But also like what I do think feelings are good for, because I think then the response can be like, no, feelings don't matter, right? Like your feelings don't matter. That's not the point. But yeah, feeling, I think mm-hmm. is a part of it. Like I think the the book really clarified that for me. So I hope that made sense. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think 
Yeah, this is this is sort of where I've ended up at the end of the book. And maybe this is where I'm going with a next book, potentially. Uh, that I, I mean, the, the kind of question that I'm stuck with is what what feelings produce action? What kinds of feelings produce action? Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I've been hung up on that same problem that you're discussing of, you know, we, we nowadays, particularly, I mean, this has always been true to some extent, but I think even now, you know, compared to our Victorian predecessors, we are asked to witness an amount of suffering that is probably unprecedented in terms of people distant from us, right? Like, you know, through social media, um, we are seeing people suffer all the time and people have different reactions to that. Some, you know, I think a lot of people care. Some people, you know, might have a kind of schadenfreude reaction depending on how they feel about the group they're seeing suffering. I also think a lot of people have a reaction of just shutting down, like almost, a, you know, over feeling overwhelmed, feeling sad, feeling panicked. You know, there's a lot of feelings that are produced by seeing that kind of suffering. And I don't think that many of them are productive in leading to action. You know, like I'm, this is the kind of thing I'm stuck on here, which the, the relationship between caring about something and care taking care of somebody or doing something, you know? And I, I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced. I don't know. It's a problem. I'm not convinced that, that guilt leads to a lot of, of action, but it might, I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't figured out this problem. I think the other thing that's been in the back of my mind is like, how do you introduce more joy into activism? Like how can activism be joyful? Because I think a lot of times like joy, like I think joy and pleasure are necessary in, in activism. And I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of things that we feel we need to do in order to feel like we're, we're sort of doing our part in making our communities and our world be the way that we want it to be. A lot of those actions that we have to take are really not pleasurable like canvassing, um, helping people get registered to vote, you know, asking, like trying to get donations for things, uh, contacting your, your local politicians, you know, being involved in electoral politics. A lot of those things are really unpleasant. Um, and I think it's not a coincidence. <laughs> I think the, you know, the, the, the affective, um, I don't know what the right word is, the the kind of valence, I guess, of of those activities does something. What it does is it keeps a lot of people out, out of politics, out of their local electoral politics or out of activism, out of community organizing. So I'm that's something that's on my mind is is I mean, and and I know there are a lot of people who have done a lot more than I have regarding that and are, you know, actively doing sort of joyful community work. But that's, that's something that's on my mind. What, what feelings enable us to act? What feelings compel us to act? I mean, one of the questions in the book is at what point is somebody else's suffering intolerable to you? At what point are you compelled to act? Um, And, you know, when, when is it tolerable? 
you know, for a lot of, for a lot of the people in the book, it is tolerable. And then there are circumstances where for some characters it's intolerable and they act against their better judgment against, you know, their against what other people are telling them to do. Um, and act anyway, because they cannot tolerate that suffering. So yeah, those are all things that are on my mind. They're not quite, I'm, I don't want to falsely advertise and suggest that all those questions are answered in this book, but, um, they're, they're at least explored (laughs) brooch. (laughs) Well, you've kind of told us a little bit about like what you're thinking about next. Um, do you want to share anything else with our listeners before I let you go? If you're, I don't know, you want some, some, um, more Twitter followers or if there's like, <laughs> you know, anything you sort of want to pitch, like this is the, this is the moment. <laughs> I don't have that much to pitch. Um, I mean, I, yeah, if, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jen McClure and I tweet about once every six months and it's usually just to say the next thing I've written. So it's, it's not a big commitment, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, I think that's it. Well, this was wonderful. I really, really appreciate you making the time. My to- pleasure. Yeah. And thank you so much for the opportunity to read the book. I really did. I I loved reading this. (laughs) Thank you. That's, that's really nice to hear. That's really nice to hear. It's just come out. So um, you're certainly one of the first readers of the book. So um, it's it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I hope. Yeah. (laughs) I hope not. Um, Yeah. Well, and it's nice to hear, you know, what you kind of took away from it because you don't know that as an author. So yeah, it's exciting because and it, that a lot of the things that are the most exciting parts to me are the things that you were talking about. Is that's good. good. I feel like I've done my duty then. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, listeners. Um, we will see you next time. Bye.